I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute, and we're going to talk about whether John Roberts is the new swing vote, a few orders and opinions, and I also sat down with Beth Williams from the Justice Department. Ilya, thanks for joining me. Good to be back. It's uh, it's been a while. Uh, we'll see if I've sharpened my trivia skills any. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about a few SCOTUS headlines from this week. First up, is John Roberts the new swing vote? There have been a number of articles about the Chief Justice in light of the fact that he's joined the more liberal members of the court in a handful of recent cases, uh, but he's not consistently joining the liberal bloc. So, for example, he sided with the liberals in ruling for an Alabama death row inmate who says his dementia renders him incompetent so the state cannot execute him. But then he voted to allow Alabama to go forward with the execution of another inmate. This time it was a Muslim inmate who had requested an imam be present at the execution. And then Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberals to reject the Trump administration's request to reinstate restrictions on asylum seekers that a lower court had blocked. But he voted to allow the Trump administration's ban on allowing transgendered individuals to serve in the military to go into effect while there are cases pending in in lower courts. And then finally, he voted to halt Louisiana's law that would require abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital while that case is pending. But going back a few terms, he dissented from a 2016 decision striking down a somewhat related Texas law uh, dealing with admitting privileges. So, you know, there always has to be someone in the middle. But Ilya, what do you think this means for the court? So I don't think Roberts is quote-unquote, evolving or moving left or the next Stevens or Souter or whoever. Um, He's always been a minimalist. He's always been cautious. And in his new role as, I don't want to call it the swing vote, I'll just call it the median vote, um, it's it's rare to have the chief justice who's sort of the keeper of the court's uh, uh, institutional integrity or or whatever you want to call it, uh, to have him as that median vote. I think that weighs heavily on Roberts. He wants to try to make the court appear less political, less partisan. And so where he can, he will try to uh, minimize whatever steps the court's taking. So I I don't think that if the rubber hits the road and the court has to decide an issue four square regarding abortion or affirmative action or the Voting Rights Act or campaign finance or affirmative action, any of these things, that he's going to go back on what he's already written with his rich record of, of jurisprudence. But he is going to try very hard not to have that happen. And so to the extent that we're seeing uh, aspects of, quote-unquote, apostasy, that's <laughs> much more going to happen on these sorts of procedural motions, what, what lawyers call the shadow docket, not the big, meaty cases argued in front of the court. Uh, and even though, apparently, he's now joined with to become the, the deciding vote with the liberals, uh, uh, as many times in the last two terms as in his previous 11 terms combined, I really don't think this is an indication that he's swinging or moving. Uh, it's just he really feels like it's his job uh, to try to make the court seem less political, and that will be reflected in his votes on cert, which cases to grant on these motions and procedures, and also Uh, as we've seen throughout his career on the court, in writing more narrow decisions than some of his either more conservative or more liberal colleagues uh, would want. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And particularly with the, you know, the situation where you have a party asking for, you know, for a stay of a lower court opinion or, you know, to, to, to halt a law from going into effect, you know, that doesn't really speak to what his view of the merits of the dispute is. And, you know, I think the Louisiana abortion case is a great example. You know, the fact that the court, you know, put that law on ice uh, until the challengers can file a cert petition, I think that's a, a pretty clear sign that, you know, the justices will probably take that case up next term. Uh, yeah, that, but it, that could well be. I, I think, uh, you know, he wants to, he takes seriously uh, the judge as a kind of a, a restrained role. Uh, there's a big debate, obviously, on the center-right about how much restraint versus engagement to en- engage in, and uh, <laughs> as it were, and, uh, and Roberts is firmly on the restraint side. And so if it's possible not to decide a question, to, to punt it, he will do that. Uh, but when it's not possible to punt it, uh, if there have been a series of cases and he's given a warning, you know, Congress fix this or somebody fix this, if he's backed into a corner, he will rule. That's happened on campaign finance, culminating in Citizens United. It, it, it happened in voting rights, culminating in Shelby County. Uh, and, you know, but like I said, I, I don't think, uh, you know, Roberts has all of a sudden rethought his dissent uh, in Obergefell or Whole Woman's <laughs> Health uh, or, or anything else. Uh, he, he is who he is, and he's primarily a minimalist and a restraint uh, guy secondarily an originalist, textualist, or anything else. Well, moving on to orders and opinions from this week. First up, the court granted cert in an additional case that it'll hear next term. Uh, So this is a case involving the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So when that office denies a patent, an unsuccessful patent applicant has a couple of options for review, one of which includes going to federal district court, where the applicant is required to pay, quote, all the expenses of the proceedings, according to the relevant statute. So the court has taken up this case to decide whether all the expenses includes expenses for the patent office's attorneys that are defending the decision to deny the patent application in the first place. Uh, so, you know, not not necessarily uh, the most exciting case, but that's uh, an additional one for, for what is so far a pretty light term. Uh, yeah, for, as, for as, next a, term. as a simple constitutional lawyer, I, I don't know how much uh, I want to go into that. And in fact, uh, it, <laughs> it, it probably won't make it this term. We're now into early March. Typically, cases granted, unless on some emergency basis like the census question, are, are not going to appear uh, on the oral argument calendar this year. But it does echo... Uh, a case that uh, we're going to talk about anyway, the decision that was issued uh, uh, on Monday in uh, 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 allocation of, of full costs under the Copyright Act, the Rumini Street case. And mm-hmm. there, similar to this new patent case, does full cost include these other things that aren't otherwise enumerated? It's kind of a, a bread-and-butter statutory interpretation uh, case uh, in the intellectual property space. I don't know if this is a signal that uh, this is what's hot now in uh, in IP law, uh, <laughs> or just the court has a hankering for it because it likes taking these uh, uncontroversial uh, issues that they can decide uh, typically unanimously. Yeah, it seems like there have been a, ro- a lot of copyright and patent cases in the last uh, in this term and in the last few terms. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a space that's heating up. But just to, to quickly go to the case that you mentioned, we'll we'll talk about some of the other opinions in a couple of minutes. But the uh, Rumini Street versus Oracle decision, this was a unanimous decision written by Justice Kavanaugh uh, and Oracle had won a jury verdict against Rumini for copyright infringement. And the district court awarded fees and costs, including almost 13 million dollars for litigation expenses that uh, includes expert witnesses, e-discovery and, and jury consulting. 
The Ninth Circuit affirmed that award, but the Supreme Court reversed, saying that this award did not fall within the six specified categories uh, that uh, that district courts are allowed to award costs related to. Uh, so that was kind of a, an interesting interesting decision there. Uh, back to well, the oh, I'm one sorry. Go ahead. I want to highlight from that case, and it's uh, it's Kavanaugh writing for unanimous court. Typically, the most junior justice. Uh, gets a lot of these unanimous uh, technical cases, uh, and I was actually in the courtroom uh, uh, because I was moving the admission of a of a former colleague friend of mine uh, to to the court and got to hear these these opinions handed down. But when Kavanaugh was reading, and this actually uh, was he read this section that was part of the actual opinion, he talks about in interpreting full cost. The word full operates in the phrase full cost, just as it operates in other common phrases. A full moon means the moon, not Mars. A full <laughs> breakfast means breakfast, not lunch. A full season ticket plan means tickets, not hot dogs. So, too, the term full cost means cost, not other expenses. And I wonder whether uh, he ins- inserted that full season ticket plan uh, line <laughs> to sort of tweak some of his critics from the early stages of the, the anti-Kavanaugh uh, uh, rally when they criticizing him for buying all these baseball tickets and getting his friends to reimburse him. For being an all-American man, for loving beer and and, uh, and baseball. Uh, so the court issued two other opinions this week in Fourth Estate Public Benefit Corp. versus WallStreet.com. This was a an opinion by Justice Ginsburg. It was unanimous, uh, and the court held that for purposes of bringing an infringement suit, registration of a copyright claim has not occurred until the Copyright Office registers the copyright this is basically like an administrative exhaustion requirement, uh, and and she wrote that even even though the copyright owner's right exists apart from the registration, the owner can't uh, pursue to enforce those rights in court until the copyright office actually registers uh, the copyright. And uh, and then the third opinion was BNSF Railway Company versus Loose, another one by Justice Ginsburg. So now we know what she was up to. That's uh, exactly right. When she was on, on bed rest, she was uh, you probably had her laptop propped up there uh, writing these things. I would expect nothing less from uh, <laughs> from Justice Ginsburg. So this one was a 7-2 decision, uh, finding that uh, the railroad's payment to uh, the railway company's payment to an employee for uh, wages lost due to an on-the-job injury is taxable taxable compensation under the Railroad Retirement Tax Act. Justice Gorsuch dissented, joined by uh, Justice Thomas, saying that lost wages are compensation for injury, not compensation for services. Uh, so it was not taxable income. So I just a few minutes ago, I was reading uh, the the SCOTUS blog summary on on this opinion, which was. Pretty interesting. This is not, you know, an area of the law that I follow. But the author uh, Daniel Hemmel mentioned that sort of the dog that didn't bark in this case was Chevron. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, in, in in Hemmel's opinion, seemed to go out of her way to not uh, to not invoke Chevron, uh, even though the IRS, which is the relevant uh, agency here, uh, does does have uh, has taken a position. On this this exact you know uh, statutory interpretation issue in the case, and so it was kind of interesting. What does that portend for for Chevron? Uh, you know, if if the justices are trying to steer steer clear of it. Right. I mean, certainly the dissent uh, uh, by Gorsuch, joined by uh, Thomas, uh, as Hemmel puts it, dances on Chevron's grave. Uh, talks about <laughs> how in the past briefing and argument would likely in the past have centered on whether to defer to the IRS. Uh, here, it's just pure statutory interpretation. And without even mentioning uh, the major questions doctrine or the major rule doctrine, that is, 
the Chief Justice, uh, as well as uh, then-Judge Kavanaugh, were fans of whatever the proper scope of Chevron deference is. It doesn't apply when it's a really big question, echoing Justice Scalia's line that uh, Congress doesn't, have, uh, doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. So <laughs> if it wants to delegate a big power to the agency, it will say so. Now, probably this uh, worker compensation for injury under the Railroad Act scheme is probably not a major question. I don't know. But regardless, they didn't do that. They didn't say mm-hmm. Chevron doesn't apply because it's a major question. Justice Ginsburg, uh, as I said, joined by six others, just said it's, uh, this is the way to interpret it. And there was a, a battle of statutory interpretation between uh, the majority and, and the two justice dissent, Gorsuch and Thomas. Uh, but I think more significant than, than that uh, is... Uh, uh, you know, what does this say in the tea leaves for uh, for Chevron? Yeah, definitely. And then finally, from from the orders list, there was one noteworthy denial. Uh, the case is Morris County Board of Chosen Freeholders versus Freedom from Religion Foundation. So this is a First Amendment challenge to a state's denial of generally available historic preservation funds to uh, to go towards the restoration of a house of worship. So the court denied cert in this case, and Justice Kavanaugh wrote a statement concurring in that denial, which was joined by Justices Alito and Gorsuch. But Kavanaugh noted that the court should probably determine whether states can exclude religious organizations from things like, you know, general historic preservation grants simply because they are religious. Kavanaugh pointed out that the court might want to wait uh, to take up this issue until the lower courts have had a, a chance to, to chew on the 2017 decision in Trinity Lutheran and, and, and see how it uh, pans out in, in other areas. In, in that 2017 decision, uh, the court held that a state couldn't discriminate against a church-run daycare in giving out grants for playground resurfacing materials. So I thought it was interesting that uh, Justice Kavanaugh flagged that you know this is an I- this is an issue of interest uh, by at least three members of the court, uh, but it, it may be a little too soon to to take on that that issue. You know, at least in the next year. Yeah, that that combined with an earlier statement in a different case where several of the justices wanted it seemed like they wanted to. Uh, uh, re-examine Employment Division versus Smith, which is the idea that if you want an exemption from a generally applicable law that impinges on your religious liberty, you should go to the legislature. Courts aren't going to aren't going to uh, read that in. Um, does indicate that there could be a shift uh, in um, the religious liberty jurisprudence, and we'll see what they do with um, uh, a cert petition now pending out of Oregon involving a, a bakery in a, in a very similar to Masterpiece Cake Shop situation. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a, a florist out of Washington State, Arlene Flowers, that's now on remand. That's going to be back up at the court uh, probably within a year. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned on the religious liberty front, and, and certainly Kavanaugh uh, will play an important role there. Definitely. Well, moving on, I recently spoke with Assistant Attorney General Beth Williams. Beth Williams is the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Policy. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Beth. Thanks, Elizabeth. It's nice to be here. So you're currently heading up an office at the Department of Justice that is heavily involved in the selection of judicial nominees. Given President Trump's emphasis on filling these vacancies, you must be pretty busy. So tell me about the process. Well, it's a it's a terrific process. Our office really works hand in glove with the White House Counsel's Office to help the president, advise the president on his selections, uh, making sure that these people are well vetted and then helping to prepare them for their hearings. So what are the top things you're looking for? 
So uh, probably unsurprisingly, we're, re- we're looking for smart people and principled people. We're looking for people who care about the rule of law and people who can put their own policy views aside and decide cases based upon what the law really is. So on average, how many candidates do you consider uh, for vacancies, or does it depend on district versus appellate court? So it really varies. I mean, the White House Counsel's Office takes very seriously the advice and consent of the senators, and the senators, you know, sometimes send a few candidates, sometimes send uh, a lot of candidates. So it, it can really vary from seat to seat. So speaking of the White House Counsel's Office, tell me about coordinating with them. Uh, the, the previous counsel, Don McGahn, was very involved in the process. Is that continuing with the new counsel? It is. Like I said, we, we work really closely with the White House Counsel's Office. It's it's one big team. And, um, you know, I think the president selected a really terrific new counsel in Pat Cipollone. He's a lawyer's lawyer. He's someone that I had the privilege of working uh, side by side with at Kirkland for a long time. And I know he recognizes the importance uh, of this process. And I think he's he's paying close attention to it. So I have to ask, do you have any tips for any of our listeners who would hope to be judges someday? (laughs) Uh, Study hard in law school. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I think obviously, you know, being really interested in these issues is is one of the most important things, right? Thinking about the law and and having, you know, um, kind of developed um, thoughts about it, about how you would approach these cases is is most important. It's not a mm-hmm. job where you want to be finding yourself five years into the process. <laughs> Certainly hope not. Uh, so OLP does a lot more than just shepherd judicial nominees through the process. What are some of the top policies the office is working to advance? Um, so you're right. We have actually a, a lot of things more, you know, more than just judicial nominations. We we deal with um, lots of policies and also regulations. So so one of the things is nationwide injunctions. Um, you know, this Department of Justice takes very seriously rule of law um, set by Attorney General Sessions and uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Um, rule of law has been one of the the key principles kind of from the beginning. And so that manifests itself in a lot of ways, and one of which is really addressing nationwide injunctions or what's been called limitless. I think (laughs) Justice Gorsuch even called them cosmic Cosmic, injunctions. (laughs) Um, And so uh, the Attorney General Sessions recently issued litigating guidelines uh, for all of our litigators about how to address these injunctions and, um, you know, what arguments that might need to be made. Um, it's, It's really an interesting issue because it's one where um, the Justice Department has been on the same side of it for years, whether mm-hmm. it's the Obama Justice Department holder, Lynch Justice Department, um, or this Justice Department. Um, everyone kind of agrees on nationwide injunctions and their uh, propriety or impropriety. Um, so that's that's one thing we've been working on. We've also um, been working on uh, the Cyber Task Force, Cyber Digital Task Force, OLP. Mm-hmm. I'm a member and OLP is working on it. We're working um, along with our National Security Division and FBI on how to use um, uh, unmanned aircraft systems or drones. We got new authorities just in October. And so it's a really interesting question about how the Department of Justice can employ those new authorities authorities and we're working with our partners about doing that. And then also um, things like human trafficking. That's another um, Mm -hmm. big initiative from our office. So before entering government service, you spent 11 years in private practice at Kirkland & Ellis. 
What were some of the highlights of your time in private practice? Uh, well, it was a tremendous experience to work at Kirkland. I, um, you know, early on, I, I knew I wanted to litigate. I knew I wanted to get that experience young, and Kirkland certainly gave it to me. I was able to do five trials in my first three years oh, wow. uh, as an associate, which is pretty unusual, I think, for for law firms. And then I got to argue also in multiple appellate courts, which was terrific. Um, one of the the, the stories I remember most was I was a fifth year associate and I was working with a partner on a case and the partner uh, decided to move on, leaving me to be the most senior lawyer on the case. <laughs> and immediately the the plaintiff's counsel set, set it for trial, which was kind of crazy. So here I was a fifth year associate and I was in charge of the entire case set for trial in, in weeks. So I did what any uh, hardworking associate would do. I went into briefing frenzy and did um, <laughs> multiple motions in limine and pre-trial briefs and was completely ready. And we had a, a counsel on the other side who was more of a, a seasoned uh, state lawyer who was, I think, a little dismissive of a 29-year-old fifth-year associate um, against <laughs> him. Uh, but I, I got there and I got to trial that day. I, had a, I also had a fantastic partner who kind of came in the last second, Karen DeSantis. She's really a terrific litigator and she was there with me. But on the first day of trial, I realized that despite having all of this briefing, the judge who was sitting in front of me. Um, he had just been assigned to the case that day, so he had read none of it. And I was standing there, and, and as I was arguing the motions in limine, I thought, I should explain the case to him. And so I asked permission. I said, Judge, would it be okay with you if I kind of gave you a little bit of the background of the case? And he said, sure. And so I proceeded to essentially do an opening statement, and the plaintiff's <laughs> attorney was kind of seething on the other side because he realized that I had gotten to do that before he had and really had set the tone <laughs> for the case. So um, Kirkland was great. It gave me a lot of opportunities. And, you know, I'm very grateful for the experience. And you mentioned some appellate arguments as well. Mm -hmm. Did you have any sort of ritual or tradition before your arguments? Um, I didn't. Uh, I, I listened to, um, you know, the Rocky song, um, yeah. Gonna Fly Now. So that was my SAT prep song. That has <laughs> continued to be a good motivator. I am of the view that um, you really need to psych yourself up for these rather than relaxing. Definitely. It's good to have a pump up jam. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. So then in 2005 and 2006, you served as a special counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the confirmations of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. So let's start with John Roberts. Uh, as listeners know, he initially was nominated to replace Justice O'Connor, but then he was instead nominated to fill the vacancy left by Chief Justice Rehnquist's death. So tell me about that confirmation process. Um, so that was that was really, really interesting. It was the very beginning of my career. So I had been clerking at the Second Circuit. I left my clerkship two weeks early, which my judge consistently reminds me of, to go be a special counsel <laughs> uh, for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, you know, people forget, but it had been 13 years since uh, a Supreme Court nomination. So it was a big deal. I mean, yeah. his, you know, th you'd had a stable court for 13 years. And I was working uh, for Chairman Specter and supporting the Republicans. And, you know, Chairman Specter was a real lawyer and he was a prosecutor before and he cared a lot about learning everything that had happened in constitutional law since Justice Breyer was confirmed 13 years ago. And so so that was, um, you know, a lot of what we were doing was was getting people up to speed about changes in the law. Um, Justice Roberts' confirmation was my first ever document review, and it was really interesting. It was all of his White House counsel documents. It, oh boy. You can't get more interesting than that. Uh, yeah. It was kind of downhill from there. And I remember thinking, we thought that was so many pages because it was all in paper. It was 70,000 pages of paper. We thought that was just... Um, 
an incredible amount that that looks paltry today. Yeah. But, but at the time, it was a lot. But we had a fantastic group of people. I mean, the people who were special counsels on that uh, confirmation are people like John O'Quinn, who's at uh, Kirkland, and Willie Jay, who now leads the appellate practice at Goodwin mm-hmm. Proctor, uh, Ken Lee, who was just nominated to the Ninth Circuit, and Jake Phillips, Greg Nunziata, a lot of really fantastic people. So we had a terrific group there. So then just a few months later was Justice Alito's confirmation. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I'm not sure Washington could handle two Supreme Court confirmations in such close proximity these days. Uh, And that process was a little bit more contentious. Tell me about that. Yeah, so so that's a real Washington story because I went from kind of being the junior person on the totem pole to a more senior person in a matter of months just because <laughs> there's turnover and I had already just done one. Um, but, you know, one thing that sometimes got forgotten is that Harriet Myers was in between there. Mm-hmm. So we had we had three candidates within like seven months of each other. And um, the the Myers um, piece of that really changed the dynamic because um, because it wasn't successful. Um, you know, there, w- there had been a very open feeling be- kind of between the administration and the Senate with Roberts. But then after Myers, that that shut down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with with Justice Alito, what you saw is um, the gloves came off a little bit more than they had with Roberts. And you saw some of his opponents really go after him. I think back to some of the things that they were criticizing him for. I think one was like the fact that he had Vanguard index funds, which seems like exactly what a judge should be having if they're going to invest. <laughs> but that's that was one of the criticisms at the time. Do you think one of the, the motivating factors there was because he was replacing Justice O'Connor, who at the time was the swing vote? You know, I think that was part of it. I think mm-hmm. part of it was that it was Justice O'Connor. I think part of it also was that he was just the second one in a very close period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, you know, encouraged encouraged folks to get really invested in it. <laughs> uh, so in your current position, you were very involved in Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. And it seems like the, the process has sunk to a new low. Uh, do you think we'll ever return to a time when Supreme Court justices were confirmed by broad majorities? I hope so. I mean, I think that that's the way it was supposed to be. You know, you remember a time with Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg Mm -hmm. when they were just confirmed overwhelmingly. Um, And then you get to, you know, Justice Gorsuch, who only got 54 votes. um, And uh, it's just so much closer today. And so I I would hope that if the president nominates someone who is really eminently qualified um, and has a good temperament and a good disposition, that that would that would mean that the senators would would see that and would would consent, but, you know, to be determined. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on to something a little more positive, as you mentioned, you clerked at the, the Second Circuit earlier in your career for Judge Richard Wesley. So tell me about clerking for your judge. Um, so that was one of the best professional experiences ever. I, I was coming from Harvard Law School which with kind of large classes, and I didn't have really a great um, mentor there. I didn't mm-hmm. – I, I wasn't – unfortunately, I didn't go to office hours like I probably should have. And so, <laughs> so when I was looking for clerkships, I was looking for somebody who took really a good like interest in his clerks. And that was absolutely Judge Wesley. He um, is so kind. He's warm. He's gracious. He's smart. He's a really good judge. And he um, takes the time to really make his clerks a family. He has, um, you know, barbecues every year. Um, and, you know, you're clerking in upstate New York. We have we obviously heard oral argument in New York City. So we were in New York City one week a month. But, you know, living in upstate New York, I didn't know anyone. And my, <laughs> some of my co-clerks didn't really know anyone. And he he, um, he, you know, would have us over to dinner at his house and everyone in town 
everyone knew him. I remember going to one of the barbecues, and I didn't know yet where he lived. But the town is so small, I just said, hey, do you know where Judge Wesley lives? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's in that house up there on the corner. <laughs> and so it was nice. It was wonderful clerking there, and it was wonderful clerking for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned reunions and barbecues. Mm-hmm. Um, did he have any other traditions with his clerks? I've, I've heard about some other judges. You know, uh, when Justice Kavanaugh was on the D.C. Circuit, he had the BK5K with his clerks. Yes. And I've heard about, you know, skiing with Justice Gorsuch and, and the, these other sort, sorts of outings that the justices and judges have with their with their clerks uh, community. He did take a skiing once. Um, and then after I left, he actually started a pancake eating contest, which I didn't get to participate in. Oh, that's fun. But um, yes, it was it was fun. And he would send out emails about who won the pancake eating <laughs> contest each time. Um, but he's he's terrific. He came down recently to do my investiture um, over at Department of Justice. And he's just such a he's such a good judge. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, you know, the Second Circuit has a lot of um, oral argument. They hear oral argument in a lot of cases. And even when someone was pro se, he would really go out of his way to talk to that person, to guide Mm -hmm. that person, to kind of help them out. And and that's just the kind of person he is. That's wonderful. So one final question that we ask all of our guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? So it's a great question. Um, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for Justice Alito because he's from New Jersey as I <laughs> grew up in New Jersey. Um, but I think, you know, Justice Gorsuch is actually the only recent uh, Republican nominee in the last 20 years or so that I, I did not get a chance to work on um, his confirmation because mm-hmm. he was nominated before I was uh, before I was nominated. So I feel like I need to catch up with Justice Gorsuch because I do not know his entire background in the same depth as some of the other recent nominees. Well, I think he'd be a a swell guy to talk to, and that'd be a great conversation. (laughs) Well, Beth, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Swing Vote Edition. I'm going to try to stump my guest, Ilya. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Okay. First question. Who is considered the first swing vote, or at least the first the press identified by this term? I can give you a hint if it's helpful. Yeah, I'm going to need a hint. Uh, he was appointed by FDR. Okay, see, I was. I'm glad I asked for the hint because otherwise, I was going to. I was going to guess uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, but uh, uh, Felix Frankfurter. Then, if, if, if uh, with that hint. No, no, it was Justin Owen Roberts and uh, Frank Kent, who was a journalist for the L.A. Times, wrote that Roberts was quote the swing man upon whose whim all decisions depend. Well, of his- course, the swing of the the the, the swing in time, the change in time that saved nine, that uh, you know started accepting the New Deal after rejecting uh, all all of the all of the previous uh, uh, cases starting in 1937. I didn't realize that that was a role <laughs> that he had been playing; that it wasn't just that one case. Yeah. So this was vo- following his vote in the 1937 decision in West Coast Hotel versus Parish, which is considered you know, kind of the end of the Lochner era, and it it signaled a shift in Owen's jurisprudence, which, as you pointed out, uh, gave rise to the phrase, uh, the switch in time that saved nine. Okay, next question. Writing for Slate, Emily Bazelon described this swing vote as a tease. She wrote, you prayed and nibbled your nails while you waited to see whether this justice would come down on your side. And when this justice did, you felt great relief. And then anxiety. This justice had given you the fifth vote, but wasn't ready to commit. The opinion this justice had written or signed teetered and hedged before reluctantly slumping down on your side of the scale. 
Who was she referring to? Oh, I'm going to go with Kennedy on that one. It was actually Sandra Day O'Connor. And by comparison, Ah. in the next paragraph, she goes on to talk about Kennedy. And she says that he was, quote, a swinger who knows how to be in a long-term relationship. When you've succeeded in wooing him, you know it. (laughs) This is too many, like, romantic metaphors. I I think that jumped the shark there at some point. Yeah. (laughs) It It was really over the top, but it was pretty entertaining. Um, okay, the next question. I didn't realize this was going to be trivia with a you know swing vote focus. But, right. <laughs> Sorry, I sprung that on you. Yeah. Uh, but you know, highly educational for for our listeners. Yeah. Okay, the historian Arthur Schlesinger wrote that this man's position as swing man, which is what they they called some of the justices, swing man, makes him the object of special solicitude on the part of his brethren as well as of the lawyers before the court. Who wrote that? Uh, Schlesinger. (laughs) I'm having trouble saying his name. (laughs) Mm. I can give you a a hint. I don't know if it'll be any more helpful than my earlier Okay, and I'll I'll likewise tell you who I'm leaning towards uh, pre-hint, but yes, give me the hint. Okay. Uh, FDR appointee who joined the court in 1938. Okay. Uh, Then the answer is clearly Frankfurter, although my guess before that would have been Byron White because Schlesinger was also a uh, a friend of Kennedy and, and Kennedy appointed uh, uh, Byron White. It's actually Justice Stanley Reed. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. And he... I have his bobblehead right here. It's <laughs> in the green bag. And he was also called the center of the ideological controversy and the key man. Okay. Um, one more question. Let's see if I can go 0 for 4. (laughs) Which justice said he hated being referred to as the swing vote and explained that, in his opinion, the cases swing. I don't. Okay, well, that's Kennedy. I've written a lot about that, including (laughs) using that line, which was from a speech at Harvard Law School in October of 2015. Okay, are are you cheating? Are you are you looking this up? Because nope, I'm nope, I'm very nope. impressed that you actually knew knew the date as well as who it was. Yep, yep. <laughs> we, we we don't play around here. Though. I'm 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 much better on the modern court. Uh, you know, since I became an official court watcher than than some of the uh, the ancient history. <laughs> uh, well, I think you did. Uh, you know, you did a, a decent job, and I expected that you would get the Kennedy one. But most of these questions, at least the, the more historical ones, come from a 2017 Minnesota Law Review student note by Kristen McGaver on recognizing and understanding the swing vote on the Supreme Court. So I will uh, tweet out the link to that article. It was, it was very, very entertaining and, and Clear, interesting. Clearly something that I need to read. <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> well, Ilya, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.